0: This podcast is presented to you by Pastor Jason Burns and Access Church in Lakeland, Florida. For more information, visit access.tv. Let's get to work today. Last week, I started this message series that I believe is gonna be transformative for our church. As we kind of enter into August, which is leading up to the fall season, I wanna ask this question for four straight weeks. What would happen if I gave God one year? What if for one whole year I gave God everything I've got? I gave him my time, my heart, my talent, my treasure. Gave him everything I have for one year. So my challenge last week was, what if we said from August to next August, for the next 12 months, we are all in with God? Last week, I kicked off with the message that was so important. Here was what we said. We said, we are people marked by God's presence We are people marked by God's presence, and I don't normally like to be self-promoting. I don't like to say things that are just like about, hey, look at me, but like I want you to go back and watch last week if you weren't here, and here's my reason. Last week's message about being people who have been changed because we have encountered God is so important to understanding today and the next two Sundays. If you only heard this Sunday, next Sunday, and the following Sunday without that message, it's going to feel incomplete. In fact, there's a lot of Christians who, in my opinion, have exhausted themselves because they've tried to do all the things that God asks, but they don't have the relationship piece right. They wanna follow all the rules, but they haven't encountered God for themselves. It turns into legalism and religiosity, but all of those things miss the point. Last week I said this, if you try to follow rules without relationship, it always ends in rebellion. But when you have the relationship piece right, everything else tends to make a whole lot of sense. Today, as we jump into this message, I just want to be up front with you and tell you this. This might be the single hardest thing that I believe Christians face when it comes to being all in with Jesus. And as a person who's pastored now for 16 years, I've counseled hundreds of people on this one topic. This is the single greatest challenge people have to going all, all in with God. Uh, This week, I got a text that's one of the worst kind of text messages a person can get. And I hate this text. And the funny thing is, this seems to happen to me every 12 to 18 months. But I got a text from my credit card company saying, Mr. Burns, we are concerned that your credit card number might have been compromised. Please call us about fraudulent activity. So I thought, oh, no, what sketchy websites has my wife been on again? You know, I don't know. So I, I, I call the credit card company. And when I, when I called them, they said, okay, um, maybe your credit card was compromised. We just have some questions for you. They started going through a list of transactions that seemed like they could be fraudulent. They said, did you buy two airplane tickets to the Caribbean? I said, no, but that sounds great. And they said, no, okay. They said, um, did you spend $780 at Home Depot? I said, you've obviously not met me because this boy don't like Home Depot. Um, I like paying people to do stuff, but not me. Um, then, then she went into this whole list of restaurants. And every restaurant was so much money. She's like, did you spend $215 at Outback Steakhouse? I was like, no, but that sounds great. Did you spend $183 at Longhorn Steakhouse? Also no, but sounds great. And she went restaurant by restaurant by restaurant all the way through. At one point, she's like, did you spend $84 at Chipotle? I said, back up off my tacos, woman. That one's mine. But none of these other ones, right? And she goes through them. She goes, man, so many restaurants. I said, yeah, and none of those are me. She goes... Honey, we just thought you was eating good. That's what we thought. I thought it was so funny. None of these transactions were mine. But I did have this funny thought, like, how fun would that be to have a credit card? If there was no rules and if there was no responsibility, how fun would it be to go out and spend other people's money with no fear, no shame, like you don't have to pay it back when it's all said and done, how fun would that be? It's funny because money is one of those topics that when we're not talking about your money, it's easy to talk about. But when we talk about yours, people get weird. If we talk about your money, people get defensive and they cross their arms and they don't want anything to do with it. In fact, I think when it comes to the topic of money, a lot of people think about money and the relationship with God almost like a dresser. I could explain it to you like this. A dresser has multiple drawers in it. Next slide for me, guys. Uh, A dresser has multiple drawers in it. And what we tend to do is we we tend to think of our relationship with God like a dresser in that there's compartments to it. We've got our relationship compartment. We've got our emotions compartment, our work compartment, our money compartment, our entertainment compartment, and our faith drawer. And here's the funny thing about how we tend to live when it comes to the area of our money. There are certain topics that we're totally cool with the church talking about. In fact, we say, pastor, please talk to me about faith. How can I have more faith and more trust in God? Open that drawer as much as you want. Pastor, help me in the area of my relationships. I want God to be honored and I want to have a till death do us part, still madly in love kind of love story. Pastor, help me with my emotions because I know my emotions don't always tell the truth, but they feel so real. Help me in this way. And we're good with all these topics, but if we ever start to crack open the money drawer, people slam it shut and they don't want anything to do with it. Why is this? I don't have a perfect answer, but after having done this for a long time, I think it's because many of these topics They feel immaterial. They feel non-tangible. If I talk about your relationships and it helps you, great. But if you don't really apply the principles, you, you don't really even know if it's working or not. But for whatever reason, the topic of money feels like the one we want to slam shut and cross our arms. And the reason is it is tangible and it is material. When it comes to the area of money, we feel like I earned it. It's mine. So keep your hands off of it. And it's funny to me because we'll read books about money. We'll go to conferences about money. We'll take investment courses because we want to be good with money. But for whatever reason, when it comes to money and church, we want to slam the door, the drawer shut and have nothing to do with it. I've got interesting news for you. Jesus liked to open the money drawer a lot, like a lot, lot. In fact, 16 of the 38 parables that Jesus teaches in the four gospels have to do with money. Uh, Um, You might think to yourself, like, why would he talk about it so much? It's because Jesus portrays money as the chief competitor in our hearts against God. You might think, well, maybe you're exaggerating. Maybe it's not really that big of a deal. Check this out. If you were to think about a topic in the Bible like um, prayer, for example, very spiritual topic, for every one verse about prayer in the New Testament, there's five about money. Why is this? It's because money is competing for your heart. Money is competing for your heart. So today what I wanna do is I wanna open the money drawer. I wanna talk about our money. And let me say this to you up front: Uh, We don't need anything from you. If you never give it all, you're sitting around the most generous people imaginable. Our church has never been in a better financial position. We've never been stronger financially. We don't have any major needs right now. God is taking care of us. I don't need something from you. I want this for you. Hey, you, ever, uh, you ever heard the phrase, money talks? You ever heard this? Very often when we use this phrase, it's about like contract negotiations. People say, show me the money. Come on, money talks. If you read Jesus's words, Jesus says that this is true, that money actually talks. In fact, Jesus may articulate it more like this, that money tells the story of our hearts. And I said it a moment ago that money feels material, it feels tangible, but money is so much more profound than this. Money tells the story of our hearts. And a lot of us might say things like, well, Jason, I love God so much. Oh, I love him with all of my heart, I worship him. But if money tells the story of your heart, money actually reveals what is number one in your heart. It's so important, like for example, If you said to me, I I don't really know what it is that I love and care about, I would say, show me your bank account and show me your credit card statement, why? Because if money tells the story of our hearts, we need to understand that where your money goes really dictates what has your heart. Before I get into what Jesus said, let me be really clear about what Jesus is going to say. He's not saying don't have nice things. He's not saying don't go on vacations. He's not saying don't save for the future. He's not saying don't be wise or invest. None of those things. He just wants to ask the question, out of all the things that your money goes to, what is the most important? Jesus himself said it like this. Matthew chapter six, verse 21. Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is a part of what is considered the most brilliant sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says, where you put your money, that's where your heart's gonna go. And we think that's backwards. We think what has our heart gets our money, but that's never how it works. And I can prove it to you this way. You ever, uh, you ever bought a new car or a new-to-you car? If you've ever bought it from a dealership, you understand this. Like it, It's kind of clean when they give it to you. The wheels are sparkly. There's no grease in the engine. It's just beautiful and clean, and it's, it's yours. And when you get a new car, don't you take care of it? Don't you want to like park it in the back of the parking lot so no one will ding it? Don't you wanna make sure that your kids don't ride in the car for at least six months because you know that they bring crumbs everywhere they go? Don't you want this? And then like for months, you don't allow food in the car because you don't want it to get dirty or messy. Why? Because you just spent so much money on it and because it has your money now, it has your heart. I'll never forget two cars ago for me. I bought a Ford Explorer. It wasn't new, but it was new to me. And I bought it from a Ford dealership and I picked up my boys and I was like, boys, look at this car, we gotta name it. And they're like, yeah. We should call it the man car. <laughs> at, the, at the demise of my wife, I said, of course, that's its name. Of course, it's the man car. And uh, to celebrate this new car, I was so excited. We drove to Steak and Shake, and we got ourselves milkshakes like any good man would do to celebrate his car. And we go, and I'll never forget, I hand them back to the boys, and it's not two minutes later here. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. And I look in my rearview mirror, and Gavin has somehow stabbed through his styrofoam cup, and there's milkshake Going everywhere, and now I've locked eyes with him in the rear view mirror, and he goes, "Dad, look!" And he turns his cup sideways to show me, and now milkshake's coming out of the hole in the top. You know what I'm saying? Brand new car, first day I've had it. To me, first day, first day I've had it. Milkshake everywhere, right? Why would that matter? It's because it has so much money. Therefore, my heart is attached to it. You, you, you understand this, right? Uh, about seven or eight years ago, I had a buddy who's like, "Jason, you got to get into Bitcoin." It's like, I don't know what Bitcoin is. It's seven or eight years later. I still don't really know what Bitcoin is, but I trust this friend. And so I bought some Bitcoin, a lot of Bitcoin. I bought it and i was so excited about it. Up until that day, I never cared about Bitcoin at all. Didn't care how it did. Didn't care how it performed. Didn't care if it made money or lost money. I didn't care at all about Bitcoin. I never woke up in the middle of the night wondering, I wonder how Bitcoin's doing. I never prayed for Bitcoin. I never thought about it at all. But as soon as I invested in it, I started checking it every day. Why? Because it had my money. And when it has my money, it gets my heart. Okay, you understand this, right? Jesus says where you put your money, that's where your heart's going to be. So if you'd like to change where your heart is, change where your money goes. If you'd like to change where your heart is, all you have to do is change where your money goes. And this is so easy. And yet for so many people, it's counterintuitive. And if you want to be all in with God, Let me say this as bluntly as I possibly can. You cannot say I'm all in with God and keep all of your money for you. Jesus, three verses later, same sermon, Sermon on the Mount, he says this. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And if that doesn't make sense, here's what he says. You cannot serve both God and money. You can't serve both of them. Again, nothing wrong with having money, nothing wrong with investing, nothing wrong with saving, nothing wrong with having nice things or nice vacations or wearing nice clothes, nothing wrong with any of that stuff. But you cannot serve both of them. Essentially, what Jesus is saying is there is only one throne in your heart, period. There's only one throne in your heart, and money has this way of competing with God for it. But what God understands is when he's first in your life, your money should actually go to him first. So if money is the chief competitor for our hearts, here's what I want to wrestle with today. How can you know if your love for money competes with your love for God? Like I want to give you two points and maybe a bonus third point. How can you know if your love for money competes with your love for God? Well, number one is simply this. You think your money belongs to you. I think this is the reason so many of us struggle with this idea. It's because we think we're the ones who worked and I put in the blood, sweat and tears and I'm the one who worked the overtime or picked up the extra shifts or got that side hustle driving for Uber. I'm the one who's working really hard for this. So therefore it must be mine. Cool, buckle up for a second. Who do you think gave you the energy to get out of bed and do that job? Who do you think gave you the mind or the wisdom to learn the skills to do it? Who do you think was involved in deciding that you should be alive in the year 2023 when computers and technology are thriving? Like if you got a computer science degree, but you happen to be born in the year 15, 14, it does you no good at all. Are you with me? God is over all of it. It all belongs to him. And he allows you to steward or to manage it. David says it like this in Psalm chapter 24, verse one. He said, the earth is the Lord and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. It's all God's anyways. And when you see it this way, it causes you to shift from living tight-fisted to open-handed. From tight-fisted to open-handed. I could explain it to you like this. Like, imagine you work as a manager for a business. And as part of your role, you have to oversee the finances for a department in your business. And one day, the business owner comes to you and he says, "Look, you're doing a great job managing this. I want to shift our financial priorities a little bit, OK? So instead of giving 30 percent of our resources to this idea, let's give 20 percent to this idea, and let's take that extra 10 percent and let's pursue this new idea. Can you imagine throwing your arms over itself like this and be like, "You can't tell me what to do with this? You have no right. I manage this. It's not yours. Of course you will do whatever he says because it's his in the first place. Or or take it another step further. Imagine this. Imagine you get a phone call this afternoon and you've got a distant relative, like a great uncle, and he calls you and he's like, hey, I need you to get to the hospital. I know we haven't been in touch recently, but I have something I want to give you. So you hustle up to the hospital and he's like, look, I'm dying. But as a last goodwill effort, I want to do something to bless you. I have this massive stock portfolio. Every month I get 10 thousand dollars in dividends. And it's literally just put in my bank. Here's what I want you to do. Call this person, transfer the bank account from mine to yours. Every single month, $10,000 will go into your bank account. I mean, sign me up for this, right? Isn't this amazing? And he goes, but out of that $10,000, all I want you to do is every month when you get paid, I want you to write a check and in the memo line, write in memory of me. And I want you to send it to this charity. Every single month, I want you to give a thousand dollars to the charity. Who would fight him on that? He's blessing you with $120,000 that you didn't have. He asked you to give 10%, $1,000 to a charity. You're still left with 108,000 extra dollars a year that you had nothing to do with. That makes perfect sense, right? And here's the funny thing. Many of us, when it comes to our money, the mentality we have is that God is ridiculous. Why would he ask me for 10%? Why would he ask for me to tithe? Why would he ask this of me in the first place? It's all mine and I earned it in some ways. You need to shift the way you think. When you start to realize that everything is God's, And he's entrusted to you 90% for you. And when you give him the first 10%, he blesses the rest of it anyways. It changes how you hold on to it. You're not holding on close, fisted and tight, but you're opening your hands and saying, God, it all came from you. It's all yours anyways. Told you we don't have a problem giving away something that doesn't belong to us. Like if you came to me after church and you said, Jason, look, I love what you just did for teachers. How cool. We gave gift cards, thousands of dollars of gift cards to teachers today. How cool is that? Listen, um, God laid it on my heart. Here's a thousand dollars cash. I want you to give this to bless some more teachers. It wouldn't be hard for me at all. I would find teachers and be like, Here, someone in our church gave that wanted to bless you. Someone wanted to bless you. Here, here, here. I wouldn't hold any of it onto on myself. Why? Because it wasn't mine in the first place. It's easy to give when you don't think it's yours. When you don't think everything you have belongs to you, it opens up your hands to be a conduit instead of a reservoir that holds onto it for yourself. Number two, another reason that money is competing with their heart is giving is what you do with your leftovers. This is so funny to me, because this is how most Christians act when it comes to money. Statistically, the latest stat I could find said that somewhere between 7 and 11% of church-going Christians tithe. Tithe is not a Bible word. Tithe is just an old word. Tithe is not something that God instituted. Like the word tithe is just an ancient word. It literally means 10%. It means 1%. 10th, 10%, that's all tithe means. But God adopted this principle that 10% belongs to him. Can I tell you what most Christians do? Most Christians get to the end of the month and they see if there's anything left over. And if there's anything left over, they give God something, but it's based on their leftovers. It could be 5%, it could be $50, it could be $15. I have no idea what it is, but some people give something to God. Is it sacrificial? Maybe. And they'll say, God, here's my tithe. Let me ask you a question is that a tithe? No, not by definition because tithing means 10%. But God adds another layer on it. And this layer is not based on him needing something. It's based on trust. God says, I want you to bring the first 10% to me. That word first is important because first reveals what's in our heart. Here's what you're saying. You're saying to God, God, before I know if there's going to be any surprises." before I know if there's gonna be a fender bender or if there's gonna be an unexpected medical bill for one of my kids, I'm trusting that you are my source and not me. I'm trusting that you're going to take care of me. What we tend to do is we tend to do the mental math and we look at our money and we think, if I give 10%, how can I possibly live on this? Can I give you a beautiful biblical principle? When it's not yours and you're not the owner, you get to live very differently. Think about how you treat a rental apartment versus you treat a home that you own. A rental apartment, if the air conditioning goes bad, it's not your bill, it's not. Hot water heater goes out, no big deal. I'll call the owner because it's his bill. When you see your money through that lens, God's the owner of all of it. Anything that comes out is not a surprise to him and therefore it is his to take care of. So when it comes to money, most Christians, they hear a message like this and they feel like, I don't know, it just makes me feel weird. And you might think, ah, a person that doesn't tithe, they are stingy. That's a strong word. But the truth is, according to the Bible, a person who doesn't tithe isn't stingy. They're stealing. And this is a huge word, this word stealing. Because how can you possibly steal from God. God doesn't need your money. He's fine. Scripture teaches that heaven is this beautiful place, that the walls of heaven are gold, that the, the, the walls and the doors are encrusted in beautiful, priceless gems. The streets of heaven are paved in gold. So pure, Revelation says, that it's transparent. I mean, like it's this gorgeous, beautiful scenery and imagery of what heaven is. God's fine financially. But in the book of Malachi chapter three, he really goes in on Malachi and he says, will you rob me? Malachi's like, what? how do you rob God? Like, he's God, he's got everything. How do you possibly steal from, or how do you rob God? And God says, in tithes and offerings. Let me offer you this thought, two thoughts, actually. Number one, imagine that you worked a big job, and you got paid $1,000 cash for the job, right? And you're a tither, you believe in this principle, so you get the $1,000, you take the top $100 bill, you set it off to the side because you're gonna bring it to God. And the other nine bills you leave and you're gonna use those for yourself or put it in your bank account. But you've got your $100 bill and you come to church. Now, if you've been in church longer than like before COVID, remember when churches would pass offering buckets or offering boxes or bags or churches do weird stuff like Frisbees. But imagine this, like they pass a bucket by and you're so thankful that you get to give. So the bucket goes by and you pull your $100 bill out, you put Benjamin in and you pass it down the aisle and it goes three or four people down and you look and at the end of the aisle, this dude reaches in, sees it, takes it, puts it in his pocket and passes the bucket on. What would you do in this moment? I would come unglued, I'm gonna be honest about this. I would stand up, I would walk over and I would calmly punch you in the throat. In Jesus name, of course. Why? Because that belongs to God. That's not yours. That money belongs to God. You would no person with a shred of decency or a shred of honor or a shred of morality would ever take that because that belongs to God. But let me ask you another question. Say I lent you my car for the weekend and you drove it all weekend. You loved it. It drives a little better than your car. You think to yourself and you think, "This is pretty cool. I've enjoyed having this. I'm just going to hold on to this." Would that be stealing? Yes, because it doesn't belong to you. All right, you ready to get your toes stepped all up on for a second? If you look at your bank account and there's money in it that you've earned from putting in the hard work at your job, but 10%, the tithe that belongs to God is still in your bank account and you leave it there. Isn't that the same thing? Let me take it a step farther. That's robbing God, but what are we robbing him of? You ready for this? This principle changed my life. We're robbing God of the opportunity to bless us. God said, Malachi chapter three, he says, test me in this says the Lord. See if I won't open the windows of heaven and pour out so much blessing on you that you can't contain it when you, earlier, he says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. What is the storehouse? It's the place where we're fed spiritually. God wants to bless us. And when we don't honor him and put him first, it robs them of the joy of blessing us. We make a mistake when we think everything we have belongs to us. We, we make a mistake when we bring God our leftovers. But number three, I think we make a mistake and we find this fight happening in our hearts when we think this sermon is stupid, okay? And... Um, I've taught money and giving like my whole life. I love talking about money. I love opening the money drawer. And people get all kinds of weird when you talk about money because it does feel like yours. Uh, some years ago I taught and a lady came up. This was, I wasn't talking about money, but a lady approached my wife and she said, "Um, that was the most condemning sermon I've ever heard in my life. And a lot of things have been said about me. But in 16 years of preaching, I believe the only time I've heard someone use the word condemning was one time, and it was this lady who kind of attacked Liz over it. Condemnation is not the same as conviction. And we conflate these two words, and we conflate these ideas. Condemnation comes from the enemy. It's this reminder that you'll never measure up. Conviction is a gift of the Holy Spirit to remind us or point us to what God wants for us. And if you find yourself hearing this thinking like, never going to do this, and he doesn't know, And he doesn't know my circumstances and he can't see what I'm dealing with. He doesn't know. I just learned a long time ago that the topics that I feel like the most resistance towards might actually be the thing that I need the most. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses says this. He reminds us that the purpose of tithing is to teach you always to put God first in our lives. First in our lives. The problem is if you don't get this right, here's the life you'll settle for. You'll settle for me first living With a little giving. Me first living with just a little bit left over for God. And this is not the way a Christian should live. A Christian should be the most open handed, the most generous giving person who understands that everything I have came from God. So therefore, it's a joy to bring it back to Him. Remember earlier, I told you that 16 of the 38 parables in the Gospels that Jesus teaches are about money. Here's one that helps make the point. And some of us, this is going to be confounding for us. Luke chapter 12, he, Jesus, told them this parable. Parable is a story that just makes sense, but it has a heavenly or a spiritual meaning to it. So Jesus told this story, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. Pause here for just a moment. Does he have any real control over that? No. No the ground could be bad the soil could go rotten the sun could not shine there could be no rain he had no real control over it and yet he's already rich and he yields an abundant harvest he gets lots of of green and so he thought to himself what shall i do i have no place to store my crops if you read this and you're like well jason what does this have anything to do with me that is not my life you ever had a garage sale ever taken so many trips to Goodwill with bags of junk you cleaned out from your house that they they have you on a first name basis? You ever had this? You ever uh, run out of space in your closets and your garage and your attic and you think, where am I going to put this? You ever walked into a closet full of clothes and thought to yourself, I have nothing to wear. This might have more to do with you than you think. Then he So this is what I'll do, here's my plan. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones and there I will store my surplus grain, my extra grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years, take life easy, here's the American dream, eat, drink and be merry. And this is what we want. We wanna have enough money to eat, drink and be married, to live life and have fun now, but also to save enough so that in the future we can have enough money to retire so that we can spend more time eating and drinking and being married, this is what we want. But then Jesus shifts the perspective on the story and he says, no, no, no. He says, but God said to him, you fool. Whenever scripture uses the word fool, pay attention because you never want to be what scripture classifies as a fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Don't you understand the purpose of money isn't just about you? Like money can add meaning to your life, but money isn't the meaning of life. It's not about how much can you store up for you. It's about what you can do with it. So then he goes on, this is how. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Let me say what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying, don't save for your future. Jesus isn't saying, don't be wise and save and plan ahead. Jesus isn't saying, don't think about your children. Jesus isn't saying, don't enjoy your life. He's not saying any of those things, but here's what he is saying. Don't buy in to the consumption assumption. Well, what is the consumption assumption? I love this, this next slide. The consumption assumption is the assumption that everything that comes my way is for my consumption. And this is how most of us live our lives. We think that everything we have belongs to us and so therefore I'll spend it on me. And what Jesus taught in the story is nothing wrong with enjoying your life and having nice things, but make sure first you are rich towards God. Use your money to tell the story of your heart and may the story of your heart be God your first. So here's, let me make it really practical just for the last couple minutes we have. There's only five things you can even do with money. Like there's not a lot of things you can do. You can only do five. The first thing you can do is you can spend it. The second thing you can do with money is you can repay your debt. Number three is you can pay your taxes. Number four is you can save it. And number five is you can give it. There's only five things you can do with your money. Here's the funny thing. This is the order in which most of us use our money. We put me first, we repay debts, we pay taxes, save. And then if there's anything left over, we give. Can I show you really what all of these say? Look at this. Number one, I can spend it. Well, that's about me. And I can repay debt. That's about me, but like yesterday, right? Number three is so I can pay my taxes, which ultimately benefits me. Number four, I can save it, which is about me tomorrow, me in the future. And then if there's anything, anything left over, I can give it, which is ultimately about God and others. And I think this is how most of us live our lives. In fact, I think if you were to open your bank account and just be really honest with yourself, this is how most of us live our lives. Remember earlier we read, Matthew 6, 21, Jesus said, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Twelve verses later, it's in the same sermon, just a few verses down. Jesus said, This, but seek first. But before everything else, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And this is funny because the truth is we don't really use kingdom language in our democracy-driven world. We don't use the language of kings and empires and and monarchies and autocracies. We We don't talk like that anymore. But here's what Jesus is saying. But put what matters to God first. And then I want you to see this. He says, and all these things will be given to you as well. What are all these things? All the things that matter to you, all the things you worry about, all the stuff that keeps you up at night, all these things that you care about, when you put God first, check this out, he cares about it for you. So I told you earlier, most Christians, the truth is most Americans, we spend our money in five different ways. Here's here's another way I can show it to you one more time. I, I want us to flip the script. I want us to make this decision that we're not going to live like everybody else. And so here's what we can do. Remember, this is how most Americans and unfortunately how most Christians tend to live. It's me, 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 maybe if there's anything left over God and others. What if we made the decision today to say, God, I'm putting you first and I'm flipping the script. And I'm saying, God, you be number one. Everything else all about me, I'm going to seek you first. And I'll trust that you'll handle everything else for me. I love how Andy Stanley says this. He goes, you can take this simple idea and you can reduce it to one three-word phrase when you can learn to give, save, and live. Give first, save second, live on the rest. It changes everything. Give. And I think you need to make a decision. I'm just gonna be blunt with you. To tithe. The first 10% belongs to God. The first 10%. And this is so funny, because I've had people over the years say things to me, like, well, Jason, you know, so much, 10%. How, how do I do 10%? Like, can I ease into it? Okay, I want you to hear me on this. Partial obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. There's like no other thing I can think of in the Bible where partial obedience is okay. So like, say I preach the message on adultery, right? And a man comes to me and he's super convicted. He's like, Jason, oh man, I have blown it. I've had so many affairs. I've messed up so many different ways. And God convicted me today. And today I'm gonna ease into obedience and I'm cutting my affairs in half. It's still disobedience. You pick any topic in the Bible you want and partial obedience is disobedience. Can I take it a step farther? You're robbing yourself by not tithing. I mean it. Malachi 3, I said it earlier. God says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. See if I won't open the windows of heaven and pour out so much blessing on you that you can't contain it. And then he says, test me in this. It's the only place in the Bible where God invites us to put him to the test. I love like, you know, these like cute college kids who fall in love and They'll come to me and they'll say, well, Jason, I just love this guy. He's got dimples, he makes my heart flutter. And I, I think this is the one, but I'm gonna put God to the test in this relationship. I'm like, what does that even mean? I'm just gonna test God to see if this is the right thing. And I'm always like, well, you do you, boo-boo. But like, that's not in the Bible at all. The only place we're invited to put God to the test is in the area of our money. Many years ago, uh, we, we got an idea from another church that I loved. It was called the 90-Day Tithing Challenge. And here's what the church did and we copied it exactly. He said, God says, put him to the test. How about for 90 days, you make a decision to pledge to God that you're gonna bring the first 10% of any increase, any money you earn, anything you get in your life, the first 10% belongs to God. And he said, I'm so convinced that God will bless you that if he doesn't, after 90 days of your obedience, the church will give you back every dollar that you gave to the church. So we did this. Hundreds of people signed up and tried it. Hundreds of people put God to the test. And over the years, not a single person ever came and said, no, no, give me my money back. I'm gonna be honest. I loved it and I hated it. I loved it because God says, test him. Can I tell you what I didn't love? It feels manipulative. It feels like we're like trying to coerce you into obeying. So instead, let me ask you the question again that I started with today. What would happen if I gave God one year? What would happen if just for a year, you said, God, I'm all in, and this doesn't make sense, and the mental math never adds up, and I never feel like I'm gonna have enough money left at the end of the month, but I trust that if you're the promise maker, you're also going to be the promise keeper, that if you give your word, you keep your word, and if you promise to bless, and if you promise to take care of me, I'm gonna trust that you're the owner and not me. Because you're the owner, if there's ever a problem, it's your problem. If there's ever a bill, it's your bill. If there's ever a need, I trust that you're going to take care of it for me. Listen, if I had two hours and an open microphone, I could tell you story after story after story of God's provision for me. I always stop short of telling the stories because I never want you to feel coerced or manipulated. I think about the lady who came into me after the first service. She said, Jason, look, you preached something like this six or eight months ago and I was so scared, but I did it. She said, on my first tithe check on the memo line, I wrote, I'm terrified. She goes, it's been six months of faithful obedience and God has come through supernaturally over and over and over again. Let me get more blunt. You cannot say, God, I'm all in with you and withhold money. You cannot say, God, I'm all in. You have my heart, my attention, my focus and slam the drawer of money closed in God's face. You can't because your money is inextricably tied to your heart. And if your money's tied to your heart, what do you think God's after? Your heart. So what if you and I made this decision? God, even when it doesn't make sense, I'm jumping into the deep end. God, I'm trusting you. Let me say this to you one more time. If you never give, we'll be okay, but you won't. If you never give, our church will be fine. You're sitting around irrationally generous people. We're gonna be fine. But because I love you, I don't want something from you. I want something for you. My last 20 something years of my life, I've been on a giving adventure with God. I want that for you too. What if all of us made this decision? To stop living, close tight fisted. Knuckles white from squeezing so tight to what we have. And instead we said, God, everything I have came from you. So I'm choosing to live open-handedly. It's not mine in the first place. It belongs to you because it belongs to you. It's easy for me to give. And let's see what God does when we go all in in this way. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me all across this room? So God, this message is one of those ones that's way easier to talk about than it is to do. I'm asking you to give us supernatural courage, courage to trust you when it doesn't make sense, Courage to believe that it all belongs to you anyways, and so because it belongs to you, giving is easy. God, change our hearts and change our perspectives as we honor you and put you first in the area of our money. God, may we be reminded today that it's all yours. You're the one who takes care of us. May we have awkward conversations on the way home. May we look at our bank accounts and ask our bank accounts, what is the story that my giving and my money says about my heart? And then may we have the courage to confront it head on and to trust you. God, in a world full of Christians who want to play games with you and games with church, may we never be spiritual consumers, but may we be contributors. May we bring back to you that which belongs to you. And may we honor you with every part of our lives, including our money, in Jesus' name.